Would you please stand with me and take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to use this as an introduction text. I, um, I want to be sensitive to the time this evening. I know that many of you have busy schedules and uh, you work jobs. And uh, I don't want to uh, put you to sleep tonight. That's for sure. Amen. I re- I'm just going to let you know it might be a little more teachy than preachy tonight. But I can tell you with confidence I do believe this is the message the Lord has for us tonight. So I trust you believe the same thing and will listen accordingly. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, But in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Here's our word again. Look. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Thank you. You may be seated. A Sunday evening, we began looking at the importance of looking, looking unto Jesus. Last night, with the Lord's help, we saw that looking... Is one thing, but seeing is another, and so we want to see with spiritual eyes. But through the New Testament, the Lord gives us, through inspiration of the writers, uh, how to look. And tonight, I want you to notice that Paul wrote to this church, and it was a church at Philippi. He's writing to all the saints. He says that in chapter 1. At the end of the book, he'll talk about no other church was with him, but you only. And so there's bishops, there's deacons, so there's officers in this church. I bring that out only to help you understand that To fulfill this command, this is not a generic Christian principle that nothing should be done through strife or vainglory, or that one should be in one accord with someone else or of one mind, that we should be looking not on our own things but on the things of others. This is in the context of relationships, and specifically relationships in the church. Just like the Bible tells us about the husbands and wives and children, The only way it's possible to carry out those commands is in relationship, is in to be part of a family, to have a wife, to have a husband, to have children. You get that idea. That's not a a hard thing to understand. Well, it's the same thing in the Lord's churches. The Christian life is a practical life. There are things that we believe, surely, but there are also ways we behave. And God is good. As a matter of fact, I so appreciate the song that was saying, Tonight, we need the church. One of the fundamental reasons we need the church is because the Lord designed it. He doesn't design things by accident. He doesn't give things by accident. He knows we need it, and we do need the church. And tonight, Paul says to this church at Philippi, to look not. This word look means to take aim at or regard, to consider or take heed. And he's saying, don't consider yourself alone. Don't take heed, don't take aim at yourself or your own things alone, but rather look or take heed every man also on the things of others. And in a context of a church, how do we do that? How do we look on the things? That's a pretty generic word, things. It's pretty general. There's a lot of things under that category, things. Well, of course, we don't have time to exhaust that topic tonight, 
But I do believe there's one subject that we can all relate to. And it is the subject of sin. Sin is what separates us from God. It's what separated us from God and the reason we need salvation and to have a relationship with Christ. And even when we grieve the Spirit, we're away from God. We must draw nigh to God. But sin also breaks relationships with people, with each other. It's that way in a family, and sadly, it can be that way in a church as well. I want tonight to bring before you the subject of how to deal with sin with others. And it's a way that you, as a church member, can look on the things of others. And specifically tonight, sin. How do we relate to sin in other people's lives. There's no better teacher than our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 17, Jesus speaks directly with this issue. Luke 17. Luke chapter 17. You'll notice in verse 1, it says, Then said he unto the disciples. Now this is not just a clever way to segue from one portion of scripture to another. This is literal. If you don't do it tonight, please, but if you go back and look at this later, you'll see that in these chapters, Jesus has been talking to Pharisees, the disciples, then back to the Pharisees, to an individual, and now he's turning his attention to the disciples. I mention that because it's important that you understand Jesus is teaching some of the responsibilities of the Christian life. It is practical, but while it is practical, we will see later, hopefully, it is spiritually understood and it must be spiritually accomplished. You do not live the way Jesus, Jesus is going to teach to become a Christian. You live this way because you are one. Jesus is going to be very plain tonight. He's going to be very direct. This is how he wants his disciples to live. This is how he wants us to live. And the subject is two main thoughts. In verse 1, he says, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. In verse 3, he says, Take heed to yourselves, if thy brother trespass against thee. In verse 4, if he trespass against thee seven times in a day. This is about relationships. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but what Jesus is talking about are two things in particular. Offenses and trespasses. Offenses and trespasses. This word offenses is not meaning, hey, you're going to get your, your feelings hurt sometimes. This is often misunderstood. You hear someone say, well, you offended me. And someone says, well, great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. We'll look at that verse a little bit later. But that's not what this word means. The word means a snare. It's an occasion to fall. It's a stumbling block. Three other verses, quickly, you don't, don't turn there, please, I'm just going to read these for you. And by the way, I wanted to tell you that before. I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture this evening. I have it printed out in my notes. If, if you'll just, just listen, I don't mean to be disrespectful by not having you turn there, but to keep the message moving, I really would like you to hear, especially when I'm reading uh, verses from scripture. But just to give you an understanding of this word, this word is also translated as stumbling block in Romans 11 verse 9. In Romans 14, verse 13, it's translated as an occasion to fall. And in 1 John chapter 2, and verse 10, it's translated as an occasion of stumbling. So again, this is not about hurting a Christian friend's feelings 
or hurting someone through our thoughtless words, although tragically that happens, but rather Jesus is saying, causing a brother or sister to stumble. It's impossible, but that falling, stumbling will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. Secondly, not only is it about offenses or stumbling, it's about trespasses. This word trespass means to miss the mark, to err, or to sin. Specifically, someone sins against you. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21, there's a cross-reference to this, and I want you to understand this word trespass and sin are synonymous. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him till seven times. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. So putting these two truths together, offenses and trespasses, understand tonight Jesus is teaching us about how we are to live our lives in view of sin, but specifically relating to the sins of others. And so when we look not on our own selves, but look on the things of others, this is an important thing for us to know. And there are three things Jesus teaches us in this text. Number one, he teaches us to be careful. Number two, he teaches us to be confrontational. And then lastly, he teaches us to be compassionate. Be careful, be confrontational, and be compassionate. If you would look with me again at verse 1, Jesus speaking to the disciples, it is impossible, but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Why do you think Jesus takes this so seriously? That there is great judgment for those that cause offense. Those that cause someone else to stumble. Well, I want to remind you what the psalmist said in Psalm 119 verse 165. Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Remember what that word means. Nothing shall cause them to stumble or fall. Why is that? It's the word of God. Great peace have they which love God's word. They have it. Sixty verses earlier, the psalmist has told us that God's word is like a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. In other words, we can have peace that we know how to walk and we know where to walk because we have God's word as our guide. His Holy Spirit guiding us through his word. And that gives confidence. And every Christian that has prayed about direction and found answers in scripture can say amen to that praise God for the guide of his, of his holy spirit and his holy word but perhaps because God's word is such an integral part to having peace in our life being able to walk without fear of stumbling perhaps that's why it is such a serious thing to cause someone to stumble because instead of looking at the scriptures we have caused them to look to us to look at our lives, to look at our example. And by something I have said or something I may have done, I have caused them to go contrary to the word of God itself. It's no wonder Jesus takes this so seriously. When In the verse we see here, it not only says, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and cast into the sea, than he should offend one of these little ones. And we might think that Jesus is just speaking about children. And while children are included in this for sure, I do not believe it is limited to children, especially in light of what Jesus says about us. In Luke chapter 10, verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in his spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. In John chapter 13 and verse 33, he looks at grown Christians, grown adults, and says, little children, yet a little while, and I, I am with you. And then the apostle John, in his first epistle, nine times refers to us as little children. I bring this out only to remind us of our need of a father. Yes, we are joint heirs with Christ, and that's a wonderful thing, amen? But let us not forget we are children as well. We are children, and children need provision, and children need protection. And it would be good for us to remember that we need the Lord. And so I have no doubt that while the Lord speaks of the danger of offending little ones, it includes new believers, new converts, children themselves, but also any believer, as he's referred to it in other places. So according to Jesus, temptations to sin, offenses, obstacles are an inevitable part of life. It is inconceivable. As a matter of fact, the word that's used in our text, it means this. It means not able to be supposed. You can't even imagine that we'd live a life where offenses wouldn't come. But we better make sure that it is not us who is the source of the temptation. It is not us that is the cause for someone else to stumble, to compromise, or to sin. Jesus says the phrase, woe to them. This is an exclamation of grief. And based on what our Lord says next about having a millstone cast around one's neck and thrown into the sea, it appears that a terrorizing, horrible physical death is preferable to the judgment of causing others to sin. Jesus is being very direct and must be taken very seriously. Perhaps this is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but perhaps it's one of the reasons we will have to have tears wiped from our eyes one day. We will wish we could die a thousand deaths rather than see our Lord's reaction to all the things that we did or did not do. All the influence we squandered and doing it all while wearing his name. Be careful, beloved. Be careful that you not cause offense. The question could be asked, if it's so serious, I'd like to know what that looks like because I want to avoid it. How can we be the ones through whom an offense comes? Now, there's dozens of things we could probably look at, but I just want to give you quickly five tonight that I've drawn from Scripture, so this isn't arbitrarily pulled, and ways that if we're not careful, we can cause others to stumble. Number one, it's if we rest or twist the Scriptures that trouble the minds of other Christians. The Bible speaks in the book of Acts about laying unnecessary burdens on others, teaching his doctrines of God, the commandments of men. That's a way we can cause others to stumble. Telling people to put their eyes on us as if we're the standard instead of the word of God or the Lord Jesus himself. A second way is to cause someone else to sin against their conscience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 10 to 13, the Apostle Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, says... If any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren, there's that phrase, you sin against the brethren, here's what he says, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against 
Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, to stumble, to fall, here's what Paul says. Here's his heart's desire. And it's moved by the Holy Ghost, so we know he's telling the truth. I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. I don't want to be the cause of someone else to stumble. A third way we can do it is causing someone else to compromise just to make our us feel better about our own compromise. In Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses. And this is the same word. They cause stumbling. They cause a, a falling away. Contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Why? For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but, it means a contrast, they're not serving Christ, but their own belly. What that means is they're serving their own interests. And by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. They're not teaching these things or doing these things for Christ's sake. It's for their own interests. Beloved, we can't be like that. We ought not be like that. To, so that we feel better about our own compromise or the way we're living, we want someone else to do it with us. Be careful. Be careful. A fourth way is by pushing buttons. We all know what that means and we all know how to do it. But the Bible says in Proverbs 15 verse 1, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. We, we, we know that what, how we talk and what we say, the words we use and how we say those words, can make something worse. We know how to stir up anger. Beloved, please be careful. Do not intentionally do that just to get your point across or just to try to prove something. Be careful not to cause someone else to be angry because of your own words. Trust the Lord. Live by faith. Give a soft answer to turn away wrath. And then fifth, another way to cause someone to stumble is by failing to set a good example. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. And here it is, in word, in conversation, in charity, this is a love that gives without any expectation of getting something back. That's why we still use that word today. That's what charity is. It's a, it's a genuine love. Be an example in love, spirit, and faith, and in purity. But if we're not an example of those things, we're failing. And, it, and while it's written to Timothy, it's applicable to all believers. We have to be careful how we live our lives. We are Christians, and the root word of that title is our Lord, Christ. So let, let's live up to that name in short, beloved, watch your lifestyle. Watch your attitudes. Watch your teaching. Watch your motives. Watch your words. Or, as we could say right from the text, as Jesus would say, take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves. A disciple of Jesus Christ has a duty to not cause other people to stumble. And so while we think of sin in other people's lives, let's first be careful, be cautious that we not cause it by how we live or how we fail to live. But Jesus goes on in verse 3, and 
tells us to not only be careful, but to be confrontational. If you look back in Luke 17 and verse 3, he reminds us to take heed to ourselves. And he says this, if thy brother trespass against thee, post it on Facebook. If thy brother trespass against thee, find a consensus that will agree with you and then let him have it. If thy brother trespass against thee, bear false witness against them to make them look bad to other people. If thy brother trespass against thee, hold a grudge for as long as you possibly can. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke them to others. Well, we're getting closer. There's rebuke, but not to others. Jesus is very clear. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. Rebuke him. There's nothing wrong with confrontation as long as it is done with love. Now, I realize that there are some who enjoy that, and maybe if you enjoy confrontation, maybe you know, you're, that's not the best spirit to be doing it, right? The possibility of enjoying rebuking someone else might disqualify from you, you being able to do it the right way. But most of us tend to go the other direction. Instead of being excited about confrontation, we choose to say nothing at all. We prefer to live in comfortable but culpable silence. But Jesus gives his disciples no option here. He says plainly, rebuke him. In Matthew 7, verses 3 to 5, we find a truth of why we might hold our tongues and choose not to rebuke others. Jesus says, why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? In verse 5, thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Maybe that's what keeps us quiet. The fact of facing our own sins and doing something about them keeps us from confronting them. But please listen, beloved. Jesus would never give bad advice. And if we refuse to rebuke someone who has trespassed against us, then we are refusing to help them be holy by lovingly, not angrily, but by lovingly confronting them. By confronting them, you're like the Apostle Paul. In Galatians 2, he said, when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. He had done something publicly and needed to be confronted because of it. But not only that, you're not just like the Apostle Paul, you're like the Lord Jesus himself. In Luke 9, when James and John had revealed a very bad spirit, a condemnatory one, they wanted to call fire down from heaven, Jesus turns and rebukes them and says, you know not what spirit you are. The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. There's nothing wrong with confronting sin. Now, there might be a fear here, and I understand it. Fear is real, because there could be consequences. If I confront him, if I confront her, confront her they might never talk to me again. You're right, that may be true, and sadly it is in many cases. But don't you be the one to do wrong out of fear that they might do wrong. You do what Jesus says to do. If someone trespasses against you, you rebuke them. Because obedience to Christ is far more important than bad reactions by the brethren. Obedience to Christ is far more important than the possible bad reactions of the brethren. Now, the reality is that Knowing confrontation is important, we have to receive the other side of that 
Because sometimes we're the one that has to do the confronting, but sometimes we're the ones that have to be confronted. So some of you know I lived in New York some years ago, and there was a place in, in Long Island called Stony Brook. I was there, and I met a man named Steve. Steve was a nice guy. I had no reason to be afraid of Steve, no reason to doubt that he was a nice guy. Steve introduced me to two of his co-workers. And when Steve left, those two co-workers knocked me unconscious. And while I was unconscious, I was stabbed three times in my abdomen. I know. Thank you for that. Some people's jaws dropped open, right? That's New York for you. No. What I told you is exactly true. I did not tell one thing incorrectly. I did, however, leave something out. Steve was my surgeon, and his coworkers were anesthesiologists. And they had to put me under, and I asked them to knock me as far out as they can knock me, because in order to do the surgery, I have to be unconscious for that. Now, the reaction is typical when I've used this illustration before. At first, people are like, oh my, you were knocked out and stabbed? And then when I say, but it was for surgery, people are like, oh, okay. Why that reaction? I was still stabbed three times, cut open. I was still knocked out. Why? But you realize the reason. Spurgeon said it this way. I had to get a Spurgeon quote in here. Amen. Spurgeon said this. We would never strike the surgeon, though he cuts us deep. Why? Because it is for our good. And beloved, if you have friends in your life who love you enough, and care about their relationship with you enough to confront you, you thank God for them. Thank God for people who love you enough and you're, they could say, ah, not worth it, I don't want any part of it. But no, they're choosing to say, I want this relationship restored. Now let's keep in mind, this unity we're talking about, Paul said in Philippians, is in the context of a church. And as sad as it is, the reality is sometimes hurts and offenses happen within someone's own church. But beloved, if it happens, deal with it. Con talk to the person. Say, you did this and it hurt. It, it, the, the, you, here's what you said, here's what you did. Re rebuke them, confront them, deal with them, but do it lovingly. And then lastly, not only should we be confrontational, we should also be compassionate. We should be compassionate. Back in our text, Jesus says in verse 3, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, what? Forgive him. Forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Jesus speaks like God, doesn't he? God's the one who gets to say, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And Jesus says, thou shalt forgive him. The reality is this, is that repentance, even though it may not be genuine, Jesus says, you forgive them. This is the fifth time they've apologized in a week. Jesus says, you forgive them. If they come to thee, you could sit there and you could question their motives. But I believe what Jesus is saying here plainly is that it is better to be willing to forgive seven times a day, even though the brother may not be sincere than to refuse to forgive at all. It is better to be willing to forgive seven times in a day 
even though a brother may not be sincere, than to refuse to forgive at all. Christians should live our lives in such a way that our willingness to forgive is obvious. How tragic would it be to have an assembly filled with ministers of reconciliation that never reconcile? That try to tell the lost world, you can have a relationship to God. You've offended a holy God, but God in his goodness and his mercy has allowed that relationship to be brought, uh, made new and restored through Jesus Christ. And then that same salvation is told to you through the Apostle Paul, like you have been forgiven by God. For Christ's sake, he forgave you. We're to forgive others. It'd be important if we learn not just to memorize those words and verses, but to live them. How sad to call ourselves ministers of reconciliation, but refuse to reconcile. And I want you to remember, Jesus is not asking or suggesting. He's instructing, and he is commanding. There's a story that was written by the Associated Press some years ago about a man named Terry Anderson. For 2,454 days, from March 16, 1985, until December 4, 1991, Associated Press Bureau Chief Terry Anderson was held captive in West Beirut, Lebanon, by Islamic militants. This husband and father was starved, beaten, taunted, humiliated, threatened with death, falsely promised release, and had almost seven years of his life stolen from him. In an interview with reporters after his release, Mr. Anderson was asked the question, can you ever forgive your captors? His reply was immediate and short. Quote, as a Christian, I have no choice. End quote. His identity as a Christian outweighed his identity as even something as horrific and tragic as that. Now, let me say quickly, I am not suggesting that we excuse poor behavior and just color it as I'm forgiving. Wrong needs to be dealt with. But we have to be living our lives in, a, in such a way that much like that prodigal that Jesus gave us that uh, uh, account about in the Gospel of Luke, that prodigal knew he could go home. The father didn't chase after him, but he knew he could go home and the father received him. The Bible, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, tells you, and this is if you're a Christian. Remember what I said at the beginning of the message, by the way. You, this, these are for disciples. You can't do this if you're not a Christian. That's the point. You can't try to live this way to become a Christian. But those who have been saved by God's grace identify with this kind of transaction. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, if you're a Christian... God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. In Colossians 3.13, Christ forgave you. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6.14-15, If ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A man named George Herbert said this, He who cannot forgive breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. There's a danger in not forgiving. And the Bible gives us two. And again, please keep in mind, this is about a church that's supposed to be of one accord, of one mind, looking on others and how we are to live our lives in view of others. But the reason this is such an important one is because sin can drive wedges in relationships and rifts 
But forgiveness is so important, but because by refusing to forgive, we open ourselves up to two very dangerous things. Not just as individuals, but as churches corporately. Number one, we open up our life to bitterness. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, I want you to listen closely to these two verses. The Holy Spirit moved Paul to write this. This isn't Paul's opinion. This is God's word. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. If you've never done a study on one another's in the Bible, I'd encourage you to do that. It's a wonderful study because it's often in the context of a relationship in a church. Now, why would the Apostle Paul command us to forgive one another? Because, and I, this is going to be deep, you might want to write this down, because there's going to come a time in our lives when we need to forgive one another. God never said the wrong thing. Do you ever think about that? The Holy Spirit never said to Gabriel or Michael, you know, I, I, I don't think I should have written that. Every word matters. And Paul says this, in contrast to bitterness and wrath and anger, he says, be kind, be tender-hearted, forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, 14 to 15, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Well, now we've just gone back to point number one. Did you catch that? Your actions can cause many others to be defiled. And Jesus said, don't do that. Don't live your life in such a way that will cause other people to stumble. And he says here that by following peace with all men, going after peace and holiness, looking diligently... Lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, that's what will happen to you, and many be defiled. That's what happens to them. And listen closely. This effect is not just internal on you alone, it's to other people as well. Through which Satan can get an advantage over us. Secondly, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11... For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. Now listen closely. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Why did he do that? For your sakes I forgave it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. Now listen, Mount Zion. For we are not ignorant of his devices. That's what Paul says. And Mount Zion can't afford to be ignorant of his devices either. An unwillingness to forgive will cause bitterness. And the Bible says that Satan can use that to get an advantage over you. Don't be ignorant of his devices. If Jesus prayed for you that you'd have unity... If the Holy Spirit moves the apostles to write about unity, what do you think the devil wants to happen? The exact opposite. Disunity. Distraction. Discouragement. Don't let it, ha don't let it happen. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place 
to the devil. I think that's an important principle for any church. Don't give place to the devil. There's a man named Eric Lomax, and he was in the British Army. If you've ever seen the movie The Bridge Over the River Kwai, it was made about his detachment. He was one of the men that was captured. I'm not saying that he became a Christian, but he has a very interesting story because he suffered from very traumatic uh, PTSD, very, very bad. He met his wife actually through counseling. She, they got married. She discovered that his captor was still alive, one of them at least, and they arranged a reunion between these two men. You can look it up on YouTube. It's interesting to watch. But I, I caught something out of this interview that they did with this Japanese uh, gentleman. His, his name is Mr. Nagase. And when he met Mr. Lomax for the first time, he met him having done this. He was overcome with so much guilt over what he did in World War II that he went back to Thailand where this bridge was built. And with his own money, his own expense, he built a Buddhist temple. Why would he do that? Because he's trying to get rid of the guilt. He's trying to make up for what he did, but it didn't work. I'm gonna, I want you to listen to what he says. I'm going to quote him. He says, when you were tortured, I measured your pulse. He was, he was feeling Mr. Lomax's arm. He says, I remember you. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. As a member of the Japanese army, we treated your countrymen very, very badly. I had various sufferings in my heart and in my mind. Just couldn't get rid of it. Well, through the course of the conversation, Mr. Lomax says, hey, we're both alive. Essentially, what's done is done. We can be friends now. And he meant it. And this man who had built a Buddhist temple and spent decades of his life trying to make up for what he had done with one conversation from the person that he had wronged, Here's what he said. I think I can die safely. Now, I'm not saying that he could. I don't know if he ever became a Christian. But I'm using it only as an illustration that forgiving someone doesn't just have benefit for you. It keeps you from bitterness. It keeps you from giving place to the devil. It has a very powerful impact on the other person as well. They are the recipient of what you experienced in a small way when you were saved. And I'm not the one that makes that illustration. The Holy Spirit did. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Forgive one another. We are so blessed in our lives that we are given such detail. If I asked you to raise your hand tonight, how many of you want to live like Jesus? I think most of you would raise your hand. And in the Bible, we are given an exact thing we can do to be like our Lord. And it is to forgive when someone comes to us and says, I'm sorry, forgive me. And we respond by saying, hey, I forgive you. Let's move on. That is Christ-likeness. The reality is we must rebuke sin even though we don't want to. That's the truth. But we must forgive sin too even though we don't want to. I want to just close with this. I told you at the beginning, this is spiritually understood and it is spiritually accomplished. Back in our text in Luke 17, Jesus has told us to be careful. Don't be someone who causes offense. Be confrontational. If someone trespasses, rebuke them. But be compassionate. If they repent, then forgive them. Now, the disciples hear this. 
And what do the disciples do? What is their response? It's found in verse 5. Lord, increase our love. That's not what they said. Lord, increase our knowledge. No. Increase our faith. They understood something. For us to do that, it would be solely because we trust you. It's not going to be based on feeling, that's for sure. It's not going to be based on feeling. It's going to be based on because Jesus told us to. Nevertheless, at thy word, we will forgive them. So help us have enough faith to live that way, Lord. Because it's going to take a lot of faith. And while they were on the right track, they weren't quite there. Because Jesus' response tells them, no, no, no. It's not the amount of faith. It's the object of your faith. Imagine asking Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus says, how about I give you a mustard seed size? It's probably not what they were thinking. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. Now, when you read the book of Acts, you don't find a whole lot of um, instances of trees being uprooted and thrown into the sea. So what's the Lord talking about here? Well, if you've ever had to remove a tree, cut one down and get it to stump out, you know it's not exactly a simple task. It's not like picking flowers, right? Jesus is giving an illustration of saying something that is very, very difficult. You could have the faith the size of a grain of mustard seed and it would get accomplished. What is the lesson here? It takes faith in God to not be the source of temptation. This is true. It takes faith in God to rebuke and to forgive others. But the object of our faith must be God and not our efforts. I told you this is spiritually accomplished and this is seen in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, and what that means is this, people can be overtaken in a fault. Right? We, we ought not act surprised when people get overtaken in faults. I mean, it's, we, 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 we see it all the time, unfortunately. But the good news is, is if a man be overtaken in a fault, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. But I skipped over a very important part of that verse. Because to restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering oneself, lest they be tempted, is not done by just anybody. According to the Bible, it says, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. In other words, ye which are living for the next life, ye which are living with your eyes on the Lord, ye which are living for the spiritual, not for the physical, the emotional, the tangible. Those people, you people, spiritual, if a man be overtaken to fall, restore them. The reality is this, it takes faith in God not to be the source of sin, temptation. It takes faith in God to rebuke and to forgive others. But I believe, beloved, according to the, the word of God, obedience in these elements of the Christian life demands that we trust God to protect us from becoming the source of someone's temptation. It, it demands faith in God to protect us, to take care of the consequences of rebuking an erring brother to handle the possible misunderstanding, 
whatever might happen by my obedience to God, I trust God enough to believe he'll work it out in his way. And give us the grace to be able to forgive. It takes faith in God to believe all the things that are going on in our lives are really working out for our good and for his glory. But the object of our faith must be God. The size of our faith can be small, but the size of our God must be big. We have a big God who is all-powerful and all-wise, and he is working out all things for our good and his glory. I think we're like the disciples. We still struggle believing that. And so maybe we have the prayer, increase our faith. But remember, it's not the amount of your faith. It's the object of your faith. In closing, it is hard to never cause someone else to stumble. It is hard to rebuke those who trespass against you. And it is hard to forgive those who trespass against us. But by faith in God, you can do it. You can obey Christ's commands and you can find the fulfillment of the promise of Psalm 37, verse 5. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Wives need that. Husbands need that. Church members need that. Because the Christian life is filled with relationships. And the, the Apostle Paul tells us that a major relationship we have is found in context of your church. And so don't just look to yourself. Look to the things of others. And one of the, one of the areas you can look at in others is the, the subject of sin. How do you deal with the subject of sin in other people? Three ways. By being careful not to cause it. By being confrontational if it happens to you. And by being compassionate when the person asks for forgiveness. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And a church that is committed to applying these principles, revival won't be a, an issue. Like I said Sunday night about the, the Shang Tung revival, it was those people making things right with each other and it just, it just spread. It'll be the same way in St. Clair.